want to remind you that we are blessed to have the hearing loop system in the sanctuary, and if you have a T-coil in your hearing-assisted device, then punch the button or move the switch so that that is turned on, and you should be able to pick up that device in your sanctuary seats. Remember to turn it off after the service is over so that you can hear again uh, as normal. And also next week at 5 o'clock in this sanctuary, we will uh, be able to experience a truly wonderful inaugural concert of the new pipe organ. It will be played by the world-famous Chelsea Chen. I hope all of you can come to uh, celebrate such a truly rare event in the history of this building. This morning's text is familiar to all of us from the first chapter, excuse me, the first book of Corinthians, the 13th chapter. It's, if you've ever been to a funeral, you've probably heard this text lifted up as part of that wedding service. It's so familiar to us, in fact, that we really lose the sense of its deep meaning. And so I ask that maybe you hear it again for the first time. Paul is writing to the church, a church in Corinth that is fighting over normal human condition stuff, like whose belief is right, who has the best theology, who gives the most away, uh, who can say, who can speak in tongues, who has the most spiritual gifts, that sort of church fight competitiveness that always is around whenever you get two people together, but even more so in a church. Somebody once said the church is like everybody else, only more so. And what they mean by that is that we're just deeply human. Paul is writing to this church, and, and he writes this letter to them because he wants to share with them something that he has experienced in his own life, an encounter he has had in his own life that he wants to share with them. So he says, If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and even if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, 
but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Of all the most overused, threadbare words in our English lexicon, it has to be the word love. We've ordered it down to any positive experience or affection that we have for something or someone. I just love the New England Patriots. I just love my new smartphone. And if it's not love, then we hyperbolically move to the other side. I just hate the New England Patriots. More nods, I think, with that one. Love is a word that we use so often we have lost its sense of power. Even Hollywood knows it. This will date me, but in the great movie Annie Hall, Diane Keaton is trying to describe her feelings about Woody Allen. And she says, love is, love is too weak a word for what I feel. I love you. You know, I loathe you. I, I, I love you. Yes, two Fs. Yes, I have to invent it. Of, of course I do. I love you. This morning's passage, so often read at weddings, as I said, is about the love between not just two people, but the love of God between God and us. For a wedding, the setting is beautiful with the bride and groom standing up here and the, and the perfectly, hopefully, perfectly aligned wedding party behaving themselves and everyone in the congregation dressed appropriately with their cell phones off as they would be in worship. And then a a preacher or a close friend will stand up in the pulpit and read this passage about love from 1 Corinthians 13. And everybody, having heard it so many times, just sort of tries to gain a little grain of truth out of it. But what love looks like, you see, is not this sort of, and this is the problem with it in that setting. It's a good thing, but the problem is it tends to romanticize it and to turn it into a sort of sentimental, emotional experience. When the kind of love that Paul is talking about only seems to happen after many, many hard years of faithfulness to the marriage, of hard work, of discipline, of self-awareness. The power in this passage, when we listen carefully, is to live according to a blueprint what love looks like, a blueprint that was really not innate in us, or at least has been enculturated out of us, or habituated out of us, a blueprint that, that calls our blueprints into question, because you see, the blueprint that we live with about what love is like is how we grew up, and the families that we grew up in, and if you ask anybody To define love, they will define it according to the family dynamics in which 
they grew up as a child. It could be a dynamic of abuse, or it could be a dynamic of deep affection. It's all over the map, and the continuum swings. And so the love that we have and have understood in our lives is somehow connected to that imprint on us from our family systems. And every single family system that we have lived in as a child and that we live in as an adult is dysfunctional. We love, but all love is conditional because we're human. Growing up with that system, we think love must be like that. I have a good friend who grew up with a family that was not very affectionate. His father didn't like to use the word love He would say, it cheapens the word, all I need to do is show you that I love you. But his mother and he nor his brothers ever felt like they knew what their father's love was like because he never really told them that. I asked him how it was going in his parenthood and he said, well, you know, it's hard for me to tell my children I love them. You think it might have something to do with your dad? No as he began to do a little self-introspection, he was able to say, yeah, it has everything to do with my dad. I need to claim that, love, that word love again and to share it with my kids. You see, we just keep going on through life with these, this blueprint, this imprint on us about what relationships are like and what love is like because we can only see it from the inside out. We can't see ourselves from the outside in we, we see through a glass dimly, Paul says. But it's like, trying to, it's like trying to learn how to hit a perfect golf ball with a golf swing that is deeply flawed. And you go to the practice range and you just keep hammering golf balls one after another, thinking that if you hit enough of them, you're finally going to reach perfection. When in fact what needs to happen is you need somebody to videotape your swing. Bill and I did that for each other a couple of weeks ago, and we almost walked off and sold our clubs. (laughs) It looked so bad. Just think if there was a video following us around and all of our interactions and relationships videoing us and our conversations and how we responded, we would then have our view of what love and relationship looks like. Now imprint that Lay it on top of the view that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 13, and we will see a major difference between the two, like putting my golf swing overlapped on Tiger Woods' golf swing. Oh, that's what it should look like? That's what Paul is telling us. Let me ask you a personal question. Have you ever been loved by someone who knows you completely, knows everything about you, your good parts and your bad parts, your obsessions and your neuroses, your gifts, all of that stuff that knows you so deeply but loves you still. Hopefully that's true. It could have been usually not parents, by the way, 
You know, parents get too anxious about their children. It's hard for us to love our children that unconditionally. Maybe a grandparent can. Hopefully, maybe from a teacher or a coach or a preacher or a friend. Someone who can have some distance from you, but also know you deeply enough to know who you are and love you still. This is the kind of relationship that we have to have in order to begin refocusing and reworking our heart's mind about what love looks like. And what Paul wants to do is to give it to all of us as best he can. The problem is, it's not something you can learn about. You can't read about it. That's knowledge. Knowledge will not transform us. That kind of love can only come about through an encounter. Through a one-on-one personal encounter of the presence of that love to us. We claim that in Jesus Christ, God has chosen to encounter us in that kind of one-on-one incarnational embodiment in this world. God became presence in Jesus. The face of God's love looks like the face of Jesus. And we claim that that face of Jesus, by the Spirit of God, is instilled in each one of us who claim to, to know that love of God in Jesus. This is all Paul is trying to give us. And if you can sum up the whole Bible, you can't. But if you tried to, sum up the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it comes down to that wonderful little children's hymn, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. Not because the Bible tells me so only, but because someone has been the face of Jesus Christ to us, Personally. That's what won't you be my witness means. We sang that great spiritual today. We witness to others through the love of Christ in us. So let me ask you a question one more time. Have you been known that way? Do you feel that your deepest self is known that way? Most of us would like Nothing less than for someone to see that part of us. That part that we are afraid of, that causes us embarrassment or shame. But unless someone does, we don't know what love is. A therapist can do it, but you got to pay him. There's always that leverage. When we are honest, no one really knows us that fully. We don't even know ourselves that clearly, for now we see through a glass darkly. The Bible tells us this, and it sums it up over and over again, like in the 139th Psalm, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You search out my path and my lying down. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. Where can I flee from your presence? Your right hand shall hold me fast. And what Paul is saying to us is that love can only be given and encountered from a face-to-face way. Now we see through a glass darkly. Now we don't have a full face. But when the complete comes, 
we will then see face to face. And in Jesus, Paul says, God has given us this face. And by extension of that, we gather together as one church by the power of love through the Holy Spirit. Have you ever had that experience? For Rachel Naomi Raymond, whose book I will continue to quote because she has such perfect stories, shorter than my sermons. She tells the story of her first experience of this unbelievable, unconditional being known by someone when her mother came in to say, your godfather is dying and we need to visit him. She had never met him before, so they traveled on the train to meet him. And when they got to his house, they walked into his room and she can remember the tall mahogany bed she could not see over so her mother picked her up and she looked down at this very thin very old lifeless body she'd been told that he was dying but Rachel had heard him her mother say he's dead so she had been looking forward to this event for weeks because she'd never seen a dead person so she's looking down at this body under the sheets so thin you couldn't even barely see the sheets uh, uh, moving and And then her mother places her down gingerly beside her godfather and begins to talk to Rachel. And Rachel's not listening to her mother, but she's staring at this old man on his back, eyes closed, thinking he's dead. And then her mother gets called into the kitchen by her sister. And the moment of her absence, the man on the bed opened up his eyes and turned to Rachel. And she said, I remember his deep, blue, warm, loving gaze at me. She said, I felt like he knew me even though we'd never met. And as she's lying there, he says to her in a whisper, Rachel, I have been waiting for you. And then he closes his eyes and puts his head back, moves his hand a little bit toward her, and in another moment he sighs deeply, and he died. She's four. Her mother comes into the room, asks Rachel how it's going, looks at her godfather, sees that he has passed, whisks Rachel up in her arms, runs her out of the room, fear of the trauma that she had just experienced, they immediately hire a therapist when they get back home. And Rachel said, it took me years for me to be able to explain to my parents that that was one of the deepest experiences of love and acceptance I have ever had. Have you ever had that experience? Do the meditation. Read the Bible. Connect to those who are human. Ask for it. And even more importantly, give it back.